All right, let's open up our Bibles now to Mark chapter 15. Mark 15. I know that this is a day, the 24th of December, that when it falls upon a Sunday morning, there's every reason to believe that your pastor would bring you a message dealing with the subject matter of the birth of Christ. But I think it's exciting for us to look at the latter stages of the life and earthly ministry of our Lord as we move toward the death of Christ, presupposing, of course, all of the details surrounding His birth. But I really don't want to interrupt the flow of that which has been occupying our minds over the last several weeks as we move so very close in our study of Mark's gospel to the death of Christ. And so I want us to continue. We're going to look this morning at chapter 15 of Mark's gospel in verses 1 to 21. Follow along as I read. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole Sanhedrin or council immediately held a consultation and binding Jesus they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, It is as you say. The chief priests began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him! But Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify Him! Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he handed Him over to be crucified. The soldiers took Him away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed Him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on Him. And they began to acclaim Him, Hail, King of the Jews! They kept beating his head with a rod or a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put on his own garments on him. And they led him out to crucify him. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, 
the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. As we have worked our way through 14 chapters thus far of Mark's Gospel, systematically, point by point, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, we have come now to the very last time of Jesus' life on earth. And as I have spoken to you before about some of the motives that are underlying the actions of all of these men toward the person of Christ, we've seen a number of heart attitudes, beliefs, thoughts, desires, motives that have consumed those who are fed up with Christ. We come this morning to what we might consider the official trial of Jesus. You remember in the latter part of chapter 14, Jesus was whisked away rather speedily from the Garden of Gethsemane into a place for which he had an inquisition, uh, what we might call a grand jury investigation. That happened at around midnight or later and worked its way through the early morning hour. You remember we discovered as well the heart motives of a man called Peter and what he was doing in those wee hours of the morning. Well, as morning dawns, we come to the place where we find Jesus before the Sanhedrin again, the council of the religious leaders, the chief priests, the elders, the scribe, the whole contingent of the religious elite of Israel standing before Jesus and Jesus standing before them. We also have another individual, Pilate, who is about to question Jesus, will find out later that there is another ruler of that region who will also begin to interrogate the Son of God, Herod, sometimes known as Herod Antipas. He will also be there. We also have a contingent of the Jewish crowd. And we also have some Roman soldiers. All of them are here eliciting a response from Christ about the nature of his existence and the claims of his mouth. And because this is a trial setting, one of the things that we all are so very familiar with, especially over the last several weeks, because we've seen trials work themselves out, on almost every news station on our television set, we have seen and heard a lot about trials and about a particular word in these trials, and that is the word evidence. Evidence. And I thought it would be interesting, even though the text lays itself out in two parts, verses 1 to 15 and then verses 16 to 21, that might be the way we would ordinarily divide 
this portion of Scripture and then teach from it. But I think it would be interesting for us, as we have done in the past, to look a little beneath the surface and maybe even a little bit beneath the normal outline of this passage to look at what I would call the real evidence of this trial. The real evidence against Jesus. I see three of them here. Three pieces of evidence. Three evidentiary attitudes. Three motives. Three constituent and very ugly pieces of evidence against the Savior. Evidence number one. We might call it Exhibit A. The unmitigated pride of the chief priests. The unmitigated pride or envy of the chief priests. Each one of these exhibits of evidence are clearly for us shown with a key word. It's interesting that even though, as I said, the outline could normally be given to us in verses 1 to 15 as one point and verses 16 to 21 in another point, it seems to me that if you read this passage over and over and over again, you find three key pieces of evidence, three words, three exhibits of examination that keep coming to us in our own minds as we study the Bible. And it is contained for us, one in verse 10, one in verse 15, and one in verse 18. Look at verse 10 of chapter 15. This is where this particular outline point comes. For he, Pilate, was aware that the chief priests had handed Christ over because of what? Envy. Some of your Bibles may say pride. That seems to me to stand out like a sore thumb, does it you? It seems to me that through the narrative of the passage, through the historical account of what Jesus went through in his trial, you can't miss this point. This is talking about the heart relationship of the chief priest to Jesus himself. Envy. You know that I've pointed this out to you before, some of the thoughts and attitudes and motives of these men toward the person of Jesus. And here the Bible tells us explicitly that here is why they are doing in their actions what they're doing. And here is what it says. They handed him over because of pride. Envy. Enviable pride. What does it mean? For some of you who are younger among us, and you've not yet defined or had defined for you the issue of envy, here it is. It is what I want that is not happening for me. That's what it is. That's what envy is. It's my desire to have something occur in my life that is not occurring and because something else is happening that I don't want to have happen, I am envious of whatever that is or is not happening, and so therefore I will work to make whatever I want to have happen happen just as I want it to. 
In other words, I would be envious of someone else if they were receiving accolades, praises, encouragement, exhortation. If, in fact, I wanted to receive that in my own heart for myself, clearly and in an unmitigated way, the chief priests, the religious leaders, the scribes, uh, that set of Pharisees who are traveling just behind the, the leaders here and are pumping them with exactly what they're doing, the elders, the chief priests, all of them are involved in wanting to see Jesus come to an end because His proclamation and acclamation is currying favor with the crowd, or at least some of them. And they don't like that. They don't want that. And they are working feverishly to try to prevent that, even if it means killing Jesus the rabbi. Unmitigated pride. It's really a deadly sin. It's, a, it's an ugly sin. It's a wicked kind of sin. Because it's a sin for which when it is revealed really shows us where our heart is at its core, at the soulish level of our being. It's really that which shows the ugly nature of human beings when they are pitted against another. If you go back to chapter 15, verse 1, you see that there is a time for the formal sentencing. Now, there has really been no clear evidence brought against Christ. None at all. You remember two times ago I told you that there was this false testimony given against the person of Christ and there really isn't any validity to any of the things that they have brought and yet they have already had a consultation They've already brought Jesus in this early morning hour back before them. And now, according to verse 1, they bind Jesus and they lead him away and they are delivering him to Pilate. What's going on here? What's going on here is this. Pilate, of course, is the procurator. He's the governor of that portion of this Roman province. You need to have in your mind the idea that Rome is in charge. They're in control. And even though the Jews might have their religious and political leaders at least to some extent in charge, that's only for the purpose of interpreting and defining what Jewish law is, especially in the religious area, how they are able to freely worship in their own religious practices. But when it comes ultimately to issues like capital punishment and how that capital punishment can be taken uh, to a man who they believe has violated or blasphemed God, the Jews, they have to bring that to the Roman procurator. They have to bring that to Pilate. Pilate's in charge of this particular area. And there is even another man, an Idumean, a man from Idumea named Herod. And he also has a bit of a buffer relationship between the Jews and Pilate. And so we'll see later that he becomes involved also. They have to appeal to him 
for what they want to do to Christ. And that's why these men are involved. It's not just the idea that the Jews hated Christ. They wanted him out of the way. The religious leaders wanted to destroy him and they just took him to the brow of the hill and pushed him off or they just took him to their own crude form of execution, whatever it might be, and then brought him to his end. No, they had to appeal to the authorities that were over them and Rome was over them, so they had to take him both to Herod and to Pilate. And that's what they do. They bind Jesus and they lead him away and they deliver him to Pilate, the Roman governor. So, according to verse 2, Pilate questions him. Are you the king of the Jews? Straightforward question. Straightforward answer. You remember I said to you before that because this was sort of a, a question that Jesus couldn't avoid, couldn't evade for any reason, he's under oath, it's a straightforward question. Give the answer yourself. He answers Pilate and says, It is as you say. I am. I am the king of the Jews. Now we know, of course, that this is not the same kind of answer that Pilate begins to realize. He's not thinking about anything divine. He's not thinking about anything transcendent. All he's thinking about is if you say you're the king of the Jews, that means that at some point you're going to lead an insurrection yourself. That means that you are going to try to overthrow the Roman government. And one thing Pilate was in charge of preventing was the idea that any man would rise in power and would overthrow this section of Roman leadership, Roman provincial leadership. That was not going to happen. And it was certainly not going to happen over Pilate's charge, over his sphere of jurisdiction. It wasn't going to happen there. And so he's thinking one thing when Jesus answers the question, and Jesus, of course, as we all know, is thinking about an entirely different issue when he says, yes, I am the king of the Jews. He knows he's going to go to the cross. He knows he's going to die that death. He says, I am the king of the Jews because he knows of what's going to happen whenever it happens, and it still hasn't happened even to our own day, and that is when Jesus comes back as the true king of the Jews, in fact, the king of the entire universe. And that's why as time rolls on and as people live and die, you can be lulled into thinking, well, it hasn't happened yet, and so therefore it might not ever happen. And you have what happens in 2 Peter 3 where people say, where is the promise of His coming? All things happen as they are. All things will occur as they've always happened. It's not going to happen. But it will happen. Jesus is the King. In fact, He's the King of kings. He's not just the Lord. He's the Lord of lords. And He will one day vanquish all of His foes he will one day be the one for whom all of these men, including everybody who has ever flaunted their fists in his face, and they will answer before him. And all unmitigated pride and envy will be dealt with, including what's happening right here. Right now, however, he refuses to add anything to his words. It is as you say. And of course, because of that, Pilate thinks he has the upper hand. And, and who wouldn't? Because it's just a man who's standing before me. 
Oh, I've heard about you, and I've heard that you have led many people to follow you, but surely he's just a man. I can do whatever I want to to you. In fact, this so clearly comes out. I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 19. And this is, this is exactly what's happening when Jesus is questioned, whether it's by Pilate or Herod. This is an amazing thing. Even back in chapter 18 and verse 33, we have the same kind of scenario that John records that we have studied just now in Mark 15. Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Verse 33. Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? In other words, are you an eyewitness of the things I've done and the things I've taught? Or somebody else told you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? In other words, I haven't been following you. I haven't been looking at your every action because you're a Jewish person. You're a Jewish rabbi. You teach the Jews. You don't teach Romans. Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. You see? But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. You see, any time you talk about Christmas, you better talk about Jesus' death. Why? Because he says... For this I have been born. What? To die. I've been born to die. And for this I've come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate cynically said to him, What is truth? You ever heard somebody ask that same cynical question? What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. Look, if he wants to just say he's king of the Jews, so what? That's not a crime. Anybody can claim that. But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So in verse 9 of chapter 19, Pilate heard the statements about crucify him, crucify him. He was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him, gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? In other words, he just saw him as a man. He said, look, you're standing before me. You have no power. I have the power over you between life and death. Don't you realize that, man? Jesus answered, verse 11 of chapter 19, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. What a statement. 
What a statement. For this reason, He who delivered me to you has the greater sin. What a statement. Unmitigated pride. That's really what's involved here. You have no gathering of evidence, no true evidentiary affirmation of the guilt of Jesus Christ, but you do have this. The Jews are willing to sell out not just Christ, but do you realize this? The Jews are even to, willing to sell out their God. You say, that's a pretty bold statement. Well, in John chapter 19, verse 15, it says this, So they cried out, Away with Him! Away with Him! Crucify Him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your King? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. That was blasphemous even in and of itself. Why? Because the Jews would never say we only have one king and not say that that king is God himself. They're willing to sell out even their own God for the sake of the crucifixion of the Son of God. This is, this is why we call it unmitigated pride. That's what it is. That's what it is by its nature. I mean, are you willing to tell me as a Jew and not just a, a run-of-the-mill lay person kind of Jew, but as the religious elite, the religious authority, the chief priests of the entire Jewish nation of religion are willing to say to a human king, Pilate, we have no king but your king, Pilate, Caesar. Crucify That's pride. Because what's motivating this? He is taking away our people from us. They're following Him and not ourselves. We can't have this. We can't have Jesus, this renegade rabbi, this religious insurrectionist himself, leading people to Him and away from us. That's incredible pride, envy. He is doing what we don't want Him to do, and He's not doing what we want Him to do, and that's go away so we can have the adulation of the people to ourselves. You remember what Jesus said about these kinds of people? They go onto the street corner, and they're known for their long prayers, and they wear their expensive robes, and they want people to bow down and kiss the signet ring on their finger, and they say all of these things and do all of these things because they want the crowd to worship them. That's the issue. God has crowded out our worship, and therefore we'll say that Caesar is our God, and Jesus, the renegade rabbi, is crowding out our worship, and so what we can do, not to a king, but to a man, we shall do, and that's crucify him. Get him out of the way. Destroy him. You know what the real evidence of this trial is? 
envy. It's not any real evidence. It's not any true blasphemy. It's not anything that he did to break any law. He never broke one of them. Jewish, Roman, anything. He didn't do one thing to break any kind of law at any time for any reason in any capacity. But here's what he did do. I am the king of the Jews. It is as you say. And that statement caused in them unmitigated envy. Get him out of here now. Crucify him. And you know, Pilate even acknowledges the Sanhedrin's pride. I'll do what you say. That, that really brings us to the second exhibit. Exhibit B. The unadulterated politics of Pilate. The unadulterated politics of Pilate. Key word and key verse, chapter 15 of Mark, verse 15. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, listen to this, Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Why? Why? What's the motive? What's the evidence? What's the real evidence against Jesus himself? Verse 15, wishing to satisfy the crowd. Do you see it so plainly as I do? Wishing to satisfy the crowd? That's not any evidence, is it? That's not any bona fide exhibit B. That's not enough to kill a man. Wishing to satisfy the crowd? What a politician. I bet if they had electronic means, he would have taken a poll. What does the crowd want? What do the polls say? I need to hear a word from the pundits. Do you know that every major political figure in this country, every one of them, has people on their staff paid, devoted to watch all of these television programs to catch all of the words, all of the phrases, all of the influences, all of the issues, and report back to the advisors who then advise the politicians, this is the decision you need to make, this is the way you ought to go, because this is the wave of the crowd. Every one of them. I know that because I've even talked to some of them. They are paid, if you can believe this, to watch television to watch, to see what the crowd is saying. Take the polls, listen to the people and their words, do what they say, because if you go against them, guess what? You're not going to be elected, and then you'll have no influence at all. It's a sort of a curious kind of leadership. Whatever happened to integrity? Whatever happened to someone saying, I don't care if this is not popular with the vast majority of the American people, this is right. This is honorable. This is absolutely the right thing to do. It happens occasionally, not often. And it happens on both sides of the aisle. And this is Pilate. Pilate is a historical, gubernatorial candidate. And he's always currying favor with the crowd. And that is precisely what's going on here. It's unadulterated politics wishing to satisfy the crowd. Now look, he, he's in a genuine fix. I grant you that. 
If he were to say, I just release Jesus to you, that's politically difficult because if they do something with Jesus and, in fact, a political uprising happens, guess what the upper echelon over Pilate, including Caesar himself, are going to say to, Caesar, are going to, say to Pilate? You haven't done your work. You haven't clearly had jurisdiction. You haven't done your job well. You have actually allowed Jesus to be given into the hands of the Jews. They've now killed him, and now there's a true uprising. It's coming against us as a Roman province. You are not a good leader. Off with your head. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't believe that's the right thing to do, politically speaking. But here's another dilemma. If I say that what you Jews have accused him of is valid on an evidentiary note, guess what's going to happen? That's going to be appealed to a higher source, and when that particular Supreme Court looks at the evidence that I've adjudicated, they're going to say, there's no evidence here. You talk about a sticky wicket with Judge Sanders' souls. You talk about the idea of knowing that there's a group of adjudicators just above your head who could very much look at your work and say it is insufficient. You've looked at the wrong kinds of evidence. You've adjudicated yourself wrong in this. It's not going to happen. It's a problem. It's done. We're going to reverse the decision. Boy, this pilot, he's in a fix. He's in a dilemma. And so what does he do? He says, well, number one, just for the record, I find no evidence against this man. I just want it to be noted that I was one standing there saying, I really don't see it, men. But I'm going to take this lower-level fellow named Herod, and I'm going to put it to him. In fact, he just happens to be in Jerusalem right around this time. I'm going to hand Jesus over to Herod. And then there's another sort of trial. Herod does his thing. And he doesn't want to do that stuff either. In fact, what do they do? They ultimately just sort of symbolically or even literally wash their hands and say, I'm through. I'm through with this. But maybe there's, a, maybe there's another alternative. Pilate comes along and he says, Now, because I know that it's been politically expedient for me to release to you at around this very time, the time of Passover, some common criminal, we could call it a presidential pardon, I have given you this pardon of this man in times past, and I think I'll do it again. Uh, there's this guy you keep telling us about, this man named Barabbas. He's clearly a robber and a murderer and an insurrectionist. But I would consider this. What do you think? Do you think you want a guy who has been convicted on the basis of strong evidence of being a murderer and a robber, or do you want to see this man, Jesus, released to you who's committed no crime and there's no evidence against him? Tell me what you'd rather have, justice or expedience. Expedience would have me release Barabbas to you because then I can say I did what I thought I could and I did the right thing as much as is within me or do you want me to do the justice kind of thing and say there's no evidence against Jesus, I released him to you. Don't touch him, he's done nothing wrong. And so, what does he say? Does he go back to his study? Does he pour over the evidence? Does he look at the record against Barabbas? Does he say, this is what he's done, I can't possibly release him. There were men who were going all around that area who were sticking people in the back with a knife, all these uh, Roman officials. Uh, they may have been those who came in full bore in AD 66 all the way to to 
the year 70, where the genuine revolt occurred, but this is the uh, first uprisings, and Barabbas was a part of them. He's really done it. The evidence is strong. He's been captured. He's incarcerated. That's the clear evidence. Or do I look at my own questioning of Jesus himself? I'll find no evidence against him. What am I going to do? So what does he do? Does he look at the evidence? Does he study it? Does he formulate a response? Does he work hard? He goes to the crowd. Wishing to satisfy the crowd. Unmitigated politics. It even says in Luke's account, he was fearful of the people. And so, you have it exhi exhibit A, unmitigated envy, pride, and exhibit B, unadulterated politics. And then thirdly and finally, Let's call it unjustified punishment. Unjustified punishment. Verse 18. And they, the soldiers, they took him into the palace, the praetorium. They called together the whole Roman cohort. By the way, how many is that? 600 Roman soldiers. You think they're concerned about Jesus? What might happen? 600 and they dressed him up in purple, verse 17, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and verse 18, they began to, to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! Mocking, torturous, taunting. That's what's happening here. They kept beating his head with a rod, spitting on him, kneeling and bowing before him in this mock fashion. They'd mocked him, verse 20. They took the purple robe off him, they put his own clothes back on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And when it was apparent that the cross itself was so weighty, they pressed in the service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, to bear his cross. Mocking, taunting, torturous, and it's all unjustified, all of it. Because Jesus hasn't sinned in any way, hasn't broken any Jewish law, hasn't broken any Roman law whatsoever. This is, this is an amazing trial, isn't it? Boy, what do you think would happen in the United States of America if someone were put on trial like this today? And it achieved media coverage, and all of the pundits were there, and all of the people were looking at the evidence. How fast do you think people would run to Florida if this is where it was going to occur and recount votes? How many people do you think would run and say this is a travesty, this should not happen, there is no evidence against this man, you mean to release a common criminal, a robber, a thief named Barabbas for a man for whom there has been no crime committed and no conviction thereof? You know what I would venture to say? Oh, there wouldn't be any media coverage. There probably wouldn't be any action. Because if Jesus were speaking and teaching and living the way he lived, people would say, we don't want him around here either. It's too righteous for us. Too holy for my blood. Get him out of here. Yes, crucify him. Now ah, there's always going to be injustice in the world. Get rid of him. Oh, he was a good man, but there are a lot of good men. Another one will come by tomorrow. Or... Instead of maybe indifference, how about passionate hostility? And that's exactly what we have right here. 
the unjustified punishment of the Roman soldiers, and even Herod himself, the unadulterated, unabashed politics of Pilate wanting to satisfy the crowd, and the unmitigated pride of the chief priests. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the trial of Jesus. It's not pretty, is it? It's not fair, is it? There's a lot of motives, a lot of hearts, a lot of thoughts going on. But one thing's for sure. Jesus endured it all for our sake. Do you believe that? Do you affirm that in your heart? Every one of you who are sitting here who says, I have a saving relationship to Jesus Christ. He was spat upon beaten with rods, thorns crushed into his skull, the mocking purple robe of a king and his kingdom, all perpetrated and willingly so by Jesus Christ upon himself. This is our Savior. He endured all of the shame for the sake of our salvation. And what a glorious salvation it is. Even through, the, even through the ignominious death of that Savior on the cross. I can't say that I would in any way countenance what has occurred and what we've studied. But I can say this. I'm so glad it happened. I'm so glad. For what John says in John 1 and what Todd Murray sang, the treasure-laden magi and what Herod himself should have done laid aside his own reputation and said, He did it for me. Grace upon grace. Let's pray. Father, it is a grace upon grace. It is a grace beyond description. It's a marvelous grace. It's a saving grace that Christ came to this earth as a boy, a baby boy, an infant majesty, and who endured all of this shame and ridicule all the way to a crucifixion on a cross. And He did it for us. Oh God. Thank You for allowing Your Son to experience all of these things. To then turn around and lavish Your grace upon us. The only way we can thank You properly is to live obedient, thankful, gratified lives. And we attempt to do so in the power of Christ and in His name. Amen.